The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Um, No matter who you are, and no matter where you find yourself as you listen to this sermon this morning, you have, right now, an existing way of seeing the world. An interpretive grid through which you make sense of reality. That grid is shaped by many influences, your family of origin, your life experiences, your education, your religious convictions, perhaps most invisibly uh, by the cultural environment around you. But here's the question that confronts every one of us. What if the way you currently see the world isn't the way it is? What if the way you thought things are isn't the way they really are? What if something new has happened that changes everything? What if this new thing, asks author Leslie Newbegin, is so radically new that it calls into question all previous axioms and assumptions, all inherited language and human experience, so that even language itself cannot serve to communicate it? What if the new thing is in fact the primal truth by which 
everything else has to be confronted and questioned. That is exactly what Christianity asserts, and that's exactly what the writer of the Gospel of John is facing as he introduces his book. Something has happened that's so radical that it changes everything. And the problem is, it's so foundational to everything that even language, even assumptions, even what we think is true has to be rethought in light of it. We begin this morning a 35-week preaching series through the Gospel of John in the New Testament. It's going to take us through Easter of next year, so you can settle in, get comfortable. We're going to be in this book for a while. And so right off the bat, let me help you understand the difference between the Gospel and the Gospels, because this can be confusing. When we talk about the Gospel, we're talking about a message. We're talking about the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as we just professed in our profession of faith. The word gospel is a word that means good news, and that's the good news, that God, through Jesus, has acted in time and space and history to do something to redeem the world. That message, that news, was originally proclaimed verbally, and then it came to be written down in four eyewitness accounts. And those four accounts that we have were originally called the fourfold gospel. The gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John. If you open up the New Testament, you will find those titles on the pages of the first four books. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the message, the news. And when we talk about the gospels, we're talking about the four accounts in the Bible of that news. The gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So in this series, we're working through the gospel according to John the fourth book of the New Testament. Now, in the field of biblical studies, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. You can probably clue into the fact that the word optic refers to seeing, and the Greek prefix syn means together or similar. Just think of the 90s boy band in sync and how lush their harmonies were, how just all fit together, right? The synoptic gospels are synced up. They see similarly. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the boy band of the New Testament, John is the indie rocker. He's got his own vibe. He's got his own style. He's got his own lyrics. Uh, his gospel is totally distinct. The easiest way to see that difference is just to look at it. So I want to compare with you the first few verses of the gospel of Luke with the first few verses of the gospel of John. Okay, on the screen you'll see the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile, compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke sounds kind of like a journalist, right? He's essentially saying, hey, some interesting things have happened among us. Folks have been writing and talking about them. I went and did the research and talked to the sources, and now I'm going to write them down for you in an orderly fashion. Kind of a journalistic vibe to the Gospel of Luke. Here's the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. No introduction, no journalistic setup. It's just like you just got dropped in philosophy 301 and you're only a freshman, right? That's what just happened in the intro to the Gospel of John. So who is the author? Who is this person that's writing to us about this Word of God? Well, tradition tells us the human author of the fourth Gospel is John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. The church father Irenaeus, writing in about 200 AD, uh, tells us that he knows this personally because when Irenaeus was a young man, he was mentored by a bishop named Polycarp. And when Polycarp was a young man, he in turn was mentored by the apostle John. Within the text itself, we keep encountering an unnamed disciple. And you'll catch this as we go through the book. Look, for example, at John chapter 20, the account of the resurrection, the empty tomb. We read this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Most scholars think this beloved disciple, this unnamed disciple, is the author of the book. And by the way, imagine having such a deep sense of Christ's love for you that you referred to yourself as the church member that Jesus loved. That's how deeply John's identity and sense of self was shaped by the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus. Now, toward the end of the book, John gives us his purpose in writing. He tells us why he's writing this account. John 20, verses 30 and 31 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's why John is writing. He's writing to convince you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants you to believe. That's his agenda. That's what he's out for, is to convince you to become one of Jesus' disciples, one of his followers. So, since that's the purpose of the entire book, since John is very explicit about that in writing, that's also the purpose of the message today. Here's the big idea of today's sermon. Ready? You should believe in Jesus. Man, you didn't know you were going to get that coming to church. You should believe in Jesus. And John gives us four reasons in the prologue why that's true. You should believe in Jesus because Jesus is life, because He is light, because of His glory, and because of His grace. So that's the structure of the message this morning. That's where we're headed as we look at the first 18 verses of the Gospel. John, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a seat near you, and you can pull that out and open it to the Gospel of John, and we are going to work our way through the prologue. You should believe in Jesus because He is life. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. What other book of the Bible starts that way? Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. John is intentionally referring back to the first verse of the Bible. In the same way that Genesis begins by telling us what happened in the beginning, John is going to tell us the story of Jesus by taking us all the way back to the beginning. 
John wants you to see that this Jesus is not some newcomer on the scene of world history. Rather, he is the eternal, pre-existent Son of God who was in the beginning. So he begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was anything made that was made. In him was life. There's the word we want to focus in on for a few minutes. You should believe in Jesus because he is life, because in him is life. Perhaps you've seen the t-shirts or the bumper stickers or the memes that say, baseball is life, or hunting is life, or running is life, right? Obviously hyperbole. I mean, I'm glad you like running, but it's not life. I get what you're trying to say, but it's not life, right? Contrast those kind of statements that hyperbolic statement about a hobby or something you really enjoy with statements like, oxygen is life, or food is life, or a heartbeat is life. That's a different kind of statement, right? That's the kind of statement John is making. John is saying, in Jesus is life. Jesus is not some religious figure who only matters within Christianity. Rather, he's the one who made everything that exists. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Colossians chapter 1. The one without whom everything falls apart. In our modern way of thinking, we have this strange conception that um, life just is. And that religion or Jesus or Christianity is just sort of an add-on to life. Like it's an elective you can add into your core courses, right? John is telling you that's not the case. In Jesus is life. Whatever you think living is, apart from Jesus, is not going to hold together. You should believe in Jesus because he is life. If you've been around here very long, you know that one of my basic pastoral strategies for preaching the gospel is just to ask, how's that working for you? Because here's what I've found to be true. All of us chase after things that we think are going to be life. You're going to take something, a career, a relationship, one of your children, some goal that you have, a political agenda. You're going to take something and you're going to try to make that the thing. And you're going to try to find life there. This is something we all do. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to find out over time that it's not going to work. Because that thing, whatever it is, does not have the power to fulfill you and to be what you expect it to be. And so, look, we got a lot of time. And part of my vision for the ministry of Cormdale Church is just to keep hanging around and be that voice in your ear asking, hey, so how's that working out for you? How's that thing you're seeking after working out for you? 
And then I get to say, we get to say, just like John does, hey, in him is life. You should believe in Jesus because he is life. He really does hold everything together. He really can sustain the weight of all your hopes and dreams and fears and longings because he is actually God. In him is life. You should believe in Jesus because he is life. Second, you should believe in Jesus because he is light. This is the shift in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here we are introduced to one of John's favorite themes, which he's going to come back to again and again throughout his writing. And really only after we read the whole story will we understand the full impact of this verse. But notice three things about what John communicates here. First, there is an allusion to creation. The light shines in the darkness. That, after all, is what happened in the beginning. And John is saying the coming of Jesus into the world is like that. It's light coming into the darkness. It's new creation. It's the dawn of a new world. Regardless of whether you acknowledge Jesus or not, you are living in the world He made and seeing with the light He gives. He is the light of men. Even if those men and women don't acknowledge Him. Second, there's a reference to Revelation. Jesus, the Word of God, enlightens us. Right On our own, we are mired in darkness. We're like blind people, unable to, unable to see God clearly and unable to know the world truly. And Jesus, John says, is the light shining in the darkness, revealing God to us. It's no accident, by the way, that one of the key miracles, one of the key signs in the Gospel of John, which we'll get to, is the healing of a man born blind. John does not include that just because it's a neat story about something Jesus did. He includes that because it fits with the theme that he wants to communicate, which is you are blind and you need to see. You're in the dark and you need light. And Jesus is light. The light shines in the darkness. And notice third, there's a, there's a moral component to what John is saying here. Later on in chapter 3, he's going to say the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, darkness and light are not neutral. Jesus has come to shine light into the dark places of our lives and to invite us to repentance and freedom. And each one of us is going to have to choose. Do we want the light? Or do we want to stay in darkness? John is upfront about the fact that Jesus is light. And what that means is encountering Jesus is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Because the light is going to shine into all the places in your life where you wish it wouldn't. But that's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus does. You should believe in Jesus because He is the light. 
Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. As I've talked about before, uh, I've taken up cycling in a more significant way these past couple of years, and that means I've spent about $6 million to buy all the clothes and accessories and gear because that's what we do, right? It's what you do when you take up a new thing is you got to pay the barrier of entry to get all the stuff that you need. And here's what I've noticed. Almost every piece of cycling gear is made with reflective material. And the reason is obvious, right? Because when you're riding on a city street early in the morning, you want what you're wearing to bear witness. You want the headlights of oncoming cars to be reflected in a way that gets people's attention and announces your presence. When John says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, he's talking not about himself, but about John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last of the prophets of the Old Testament. John the Baptist is like a reflector. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist is significant. He's mentioned in all four Gospels as the forerunner, the sort of one who introduces us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason is because there's a transition in Jesus between sort of the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament and the coming of a new era and a new age of God's grace and goodness. And so John the Baptist sort of stands on the threshold between the Old Testament and the New as sort of the one who captures and gathers up all the prophetic imagery of the Old Testament and that kind of ministry, and then transfers it, points us to the Lord Jesus. And we'll see more of how he does that in the weeks to come. And so as we read this gospel for us living today, John the Baptist is a great character example. Because like him, our mission is to allow our lives to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. You are not the light. You are here to bear witness about the light. As we finish this point, notice how John describes Jesus in verse 9. This is significant. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Notice in verse 4, he said, the life was the light of men. In verse 9, he says, the light which gives light to everyone. This is who Jesus is. Listen again to Leslie Newbegin. He writes, Jesus is the true light which shines on every human being. There is no other light. There are not different varieties of light. There's only one light, namely that which enables us to see things as they really are. And things really are as they are shown to be in the light of Jesus. Because He is the Word through whom they all came to be. Thus it follows that when a person turns in faith to Jesus Christ, he meets not a stranger, but one whom he recognizes as the one in whom he was loved and chosen before the foundation of the world. Yeah, isn't that your story? When you met Jesus, you, you didn't know. He was the one you were looking for, and then you met him, recognized him, not as a stranger, but as the one who had loved you and pursued you before the foundation of the world, as the one by whose light you had seen everything you would see. You should believe in Jesus, 
because he is the light. Third, you should believe in Jesus because of his glory. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is maybe the most powerful verse in all the Bible because it summarizes the most glorious doctrine in all of Christian theology, the doctrine of the Incarnation. The eternal Word, the one who was in the beginning with God and who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word glory is a word that means heaviness or weightiness or significance. Is there anything more weighty, more significant, more glorious than God becoming human? I mean, this is the event that has changed history. This is the radical new reality that upends everything. God has entered into time. The Creator has stepped into His creation. The Lord of history has entered into history. You should believe in Jesus because of His glory, because of the weight and the significance of what it means that God has taken on flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. This doctrine is at the heart of the Christian faith. And in fact, we might say we could start with the incarnation and just work out from there. And because this doctrine is so glorious and so sublime, let me borrow an illustration from St. Augustine to help us better understand the incarnation. What does it mean that the Word, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh? I want you to think in your mind of a word. Any word will do. Preferably not a swear word, though. Just pick a word. Make it a good word. Think of something beautiful and good. Right now, as you think of it, that word has a real existence in your mind, right? That word is present to you. You can think about the meaning of it. But now I want you to take that word that's in your mind and think about what changes when you speak that word. What happens is that word that was already present to you becomes a sound by means of air and vocal cords, but in becoming a sound, it does not cease to be a word. It's no less a word than when you were merely thinking of it, but it's now a word that has taken on sound. Augustine writes, just as our word becomes a sound and is not changed into a sound, so the word of God becomes flesh, but is not changed into flesh. For by assuming it, not by being consumed in it, this word of ours becomes a sound, and that word became flesh. Augustine is emphasizing that in the incarnation, the word became flesh, but not in a way that diminished what he was before. To say it another way, the incarnation is addition, not subtraction. The divine Logos, the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, added to Himself a human nature so that without losing what He was, He became what He was not. That's how the church fathers said it. This is a glorious thing. This is why Jesus is worthy of our worship 
and our awe and our respect and our admiration. Because Jesus is not merely a good moral teacher. Jesus is not merely an enlightened human being. Jesus is God in human flesh. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is the thing you should be dwelling on. The question you should be asking is, did what John is saying happen? Because here's what we know from history. History tells us, beyond question, there was a real historical figure named Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified by the Romans in about 30 AD. So the question you have to wrestle with is, was that person God in human flesh? Because John is telling you that's exactly what he was. And that's what Christians throughout history have believed. And if that is true, it changes everything. It means you have to rethink your entire existence. And that's why Christians worship Jesus and praise Jesus and follow Jesus because of the glory of the fact that in the Lord Jesus Christ, in this human person, Jesus of Nazareth, God himself was stepping into time, space, and history. You should believe in Jesus because he is life, because he is light, because of his glory, and finally, you should believe in Jesus because of his grace. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The law of God given through Moses is probably one of the most important features of the Old Testament. And it was one kind of grace. The law was God condescending to us and meeting us in our need for instruction and for wisdom and for a way of life. The law is God showing us how to live. The law is God laying out the path that leads to blessing and joy and flourishing. And so John wants us to remember the law is a gift of God's grace. But how much greater is the gift of the incarnation? How much more grace is God coming to live among us? How much more of God's fullness do we receive through the person of Jesus Christ? The Old Testament anticipates and foreshadows and points to the coming of a Savior. And then we turn the page to the New Testament and read the Gospels and find not only that this Savior has come, but that He is the very Son of God, the Word made flesh. That God didn't send someone else on an errand. God came Himself and took on flesh in order to set us free from sin. And friends, this is grace upon grace. Now, there still are sects of people in our day, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, for instance, who deny that Jesus is fully God. They revere Jesus, they honor Jesus in some way, but they do not believe that he is fully God. And verse 18 is one of the most important verses in the Bible for countering that error. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, it says. Even Moses did not see God face to face. He saw God's glory as it passed by. So if no one has ever seen God, how can we know God? John says, the only 
God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Notice what this verse tells us. Number one, that there's only one God. And Jesus is that God, and yet He is also at the Father's side. So Jesus is God, and yet there's a distinction between the person of the Son and the person of the Father. This is classic Trinitarian theology as concisely as you will find it in the Bible. Now go back to verses 9 through 13, and let's see the invitation of grace that Jesus makes. You should believe in Jesus because of His grace. Look at this invitation that He makes. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come into the world that he made, and yet the world did not know him. And even his own people, speaking of the Jewish people who were alive in Jesus' day, who had the prophets and the law, and who knew to expect a Messiah, a Messianic figure to come, even they did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice the gracious invitation we find here. First, the verse says, to all who did receive him. To all. Christ's invitation is indiscriminate. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your cultural or social background is, you are invited to receive him. Everyone, everywhere is invited into this new people that God is forming in Jesus. This invitation is for you, whoever you are and wherever you are. Second, notice that it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. John is going to have much more to say about receiving and believing. Both ideas are important. You must believe in his name. First, in other words, you you must decide that these things John is saying about Jesus are true. You must believe and you must also receive him. Think of the way we talk about receiving a guest into your home. Or how a president receives a foreign diplomat. The idea is you must welcome him in. Christianity is not merely about believing the right set of doctrines. It's about welcoming the person of Jesus into your life. Giving him access to every part of your being. Trusting him fully and completely. And it's important that we hear that because we live in a very intellectual world where when we hear the word believe, we think data, facts, agree with some ideas. John is saying no less than that, but much more than that. He's saying, yes, you absolutely must believe that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus Christ is God, but you must also welcome him in, receive him. Notice third, 
To those who did this, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus invites you to become part of a new family, to receive a new name and a new identity. God wants you in his family. Jesus wants to give you a new name. This isn't some surface level change. This isn't adding some new religious practices onto your already existing life. This is a radical break with the past. This is the invitation to find a whole new identity, to be defined by a whole different story, to be brought into a whole different family. This is the gracious invitation Jesus makes to all, to all who will receive him and believe in his name. Now, the prologue to the Gospel of John, the part we just looked at, was probably written last. It's likely that John wrote all the rest of the Gospel and then said, how do I write an amazing intro to this thing? And he just sat down and wrote those 18 verses. So, it is not surprising that over and over again as we go through this gospel, you're going to come back to these themes of life and light and glory and grace. In fact, the reason I've made these the four points of the sermon is because if you understand these four concepts, you will understand most of John's writing. John is devoted to these themes, that Jesus is life, that Jesus is the light shining in the darkness, that Jesus is full of glory, and that in Jesus we see and experience most deeply the grace of God. You should believe in Jesus, John says, because he is light, because he is life, because of his glory, and because of his grace. So friends, this is the invitation of the gospel. These are the things we'll be coming back to over and over again. And, and so that means two things for you this morning. Number one, some of you are invited to step into this, to receive this, to believe this for the first time. One of the amazing things, one of the fun things about preaching the gospel of John is that, I mean, I don't have the stats, but it's quite possibly the book, more than any other book in the New Testament, that has brought people to faith in Jesus. St. Augustine got saved reading the gospel of John. And you'll read story after story of Christians throughout history who picked up the Bible, began reading the gospel of John, and said, if this is true, i got to change everything. So that's the invitation for you is some of you come to Jesus for the first time, become a Christian, step into this new life, receive this new identity. And for many of you, this is going to be an opportunity for renewal because you've already come to Jesus. You've believed in him. You've received him. And yet the reality is that as we live life, right, we tend to dull our hearts to these truths. Other things become more pressing and more significant. And John wants to bring us back and say, hey, do you remember the gospel? Remember who Jesus is? Do you remember where life is found? Remember what it was like when you lived in darkness before the light broke in? Do you remember the grace and the glory of Jesus? Don't let that become old news. Let it be fresh news. Let it be good news. So here are some questions that John in this prologue puts before us. Where are you looking for life? Where is the darkness in your life? What do you find weighty or significant or important? 
Where are you trying to find a name? Where are you trying to gain identity? Life, light, glory, grace, all of these things are in Jesus. And John invites you today to turn from wherever you're seeking to find them and to come or to come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we acknowledge, even as we have talked about these verses, that we are far from having exhausted their depth. What it means that the Word, who was with God and was God, became flesh and dwelt among us is at the heart of the deepest theology and the best hymnody and the richest writing that has come down to us through the centuries. These are things that are deep and sublime and weighty. So we would ask you this morning, number one, that we would not treat them like they are trite and simple, but also that we would not complicate them in ways we don't need to. Bring us back to the fact and to the truth this morning that Jesus is life, that Jesus is light, that in Jesus is glory, and that in him is the fullness of grace. Refresh our hearts with these truths. Awaken our affections to these realities. Bring back a harvest of obedience and joy in our lives. Meet us where we need to encounter you and renew us with this good news, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.